to apologize to you all because uh, last week Raina spoke and I think the elders and myself fielded more questions over her speaking uh, than we did over can a divorced man still be a pastor of a church. And so that is my fault because uh, I forget that some of you weren't around when we went through 1 Timothy five years ago before we left our denomination. And so it is 100% on me that that became an issue for some of you. And some of you are going, what the heck, it doesn't even matter. And so I feel like I need to do like a 10-minute kind of rundown of where we sit as a church and who we are as elders and what we believe because I don't, that's on me. And it wasn't fair to Rain either because I just, I purposely don't tell people when I'm not preaching because some of you won't come to church. That's just the truth. And I don't want this church to be a cult of personality. I can't stand that. And it's also not safe. If I go out of town, I don't tell you I'm going out of town because I don't want you to rob me. <laughs> and when I, had, when I had a wife and kids at home and I go out of town and my wife and kids are left alone, I don't want people to know. I don't want it on Facebook or places that, hey, the man of the house is out of town, so just go rob the berries. And like, I'm, that's just silly. If you all do that, stop. That's, I, don't, I know we live in Wyoming. You want to worry about it much, but that's just dumb. Don't go on vacation and immediately say, hey, guess what? My house is free for the taking. Don't be silly. So I, in my ignorance, didn't prepare you as a second service in this congregation for what you were. And I don't know that I even thought about it. So I just need to apologize because there's been lots of questions and that's on me. I, even though I'm a, we have believe in a plurality of elders, it's on me. So I want you to understand where we come from. Uh, my background and the background of this church, when I got hired here, it, I had, uh, some of you remember that, I had a multi-hour Q&A session. And in that multi-hour Q&A session, I requested that the church would ask me questions, the leaders would ask me, and the congregation would have two opportunities to ask me any question that they had. Because I wanted this, I wanted me, I wanted, I wanted to know what I was getting myself into, and I wanted the congregation to know what they were getting themselves into. And the two questions that caused audible gasps uh, of the congregation was one, they asked me what I thought about female senior pastors, and I said, I believe women are of value and joy to our church, and they're crucial to the leadership of the church, but I believe that the office of senior elder is reserved for men, because that's what we see Paul lay out in the home, that as the man of the house, you have ultimate responsibility, doesn't mean that as a woman, you don't have equal dignity, doesn't mean that you don't have a say, you women in the room, even though you might tell everyone your husband is the, the man of the house, leader of the house, you know you have influence over him. So when we say that, we're not saying that women have no voice. We're just saying that responsibility, like we talked about with Adam and Eve, it falls on the men. Like my, Amber used to make more money than me until she didn't. So it's not about financial station. It's not about intelligence. It's not about aptitude. It's about God's chosen way for us to understand that if violence happens or financial ruin happens, it rests upon the man to make sure things are okay. It's just out of the Bible. So when Paul addresses these issues, he draws us back to Genesis before the fall. He draws us back to Adam and Eve side by side together, co-equals in this moment. So any arguments you have over male and female and stuff, you've got to go back to Genesis. You can't just hang out in the epistles. You can, but you're missing the richness of this, this relationship between men and women. And so here at the church, uh, that's been pretty standard. I don't know if any of you have seen this flowchart, 
this is another apology I need to give to you because in my desire to have a relationship with people, when people have tough questions, like you will not find on our church website our stance on homosexuality, you will not find our stance on transgender issues, you will not find our stance on men and women in the home, you will not find our stance on male eldership. What you will see is if you go to elders, it's all men. What you'll see is here's sermons. If you want to know what we believe as a church about homosexuality, go back and listen to the sermon on Romans chapter 1. It took me two weeks to run through it and go listen to the word being unpacked. A paragraph statement is not enough. And so I have always desired to have those kinds of conversations in my office or over coffee or in someone's home. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I need to have something a little more clear. I'm not sure. I think I'm right, but I'm up to being told I'm wrong. Because I want to have that conversation with people. Because nobody comes to you and asks you about those issues if they don't have somebody in their family they love, someone they've encountered, something they're struggling with, and just a blanket statement on a website. It just doesn't seem to be the, what we want in the church. I could be wrong. And I'm willing to, maybe a YouTube video of me explaining it would be better. But we all know I have a face for radio, not television. So this is our organizational chart in our church. We believe that Jesus is the head of the church. So any church you come across that has an organizational chart and puts senior pastor elders on top, I think my, my personal opinion is number one in the large law. Jesus should be the head of your church. His word, his presence, his spirit, that's the head of the church. After that, we have pastors slash elders, which we'll get to in a minute, um, and they have ultimate spiritual authority over the church. After that, we have deacons, because we see in the Bible only two offices in the Bible, elder and deacon. We'll get into overseer, shepherd, pastor in a minute, but that's all we see. You're either an elder or a deacon if you're in leadership in the church. There's nothing else that really we see in the Bible. Um, we play with the minister of the church and stuff, but that's everybody. So we only see two leaders. And so if you are a pastor or elder, then you are ultimately responsible for everything that happens here. After that, you, we have a board, and on that board are deacons, ministers, and staff. The only reason we have ministers there is because we don't say that, that Marissa is the uh, deacon of kids. Because in church world, most people don't understand that. They don't see it. So we just go with minister. Just like I go with pastor. Nobody calls me Elder Mike. They call me Pastor Mike. I'm okay with that. It's not worth splitting hairs over, but technically, that's not even really a position in the church. It's synonymous with elder. Teacher elders mentioned more in the New Testament than pastor. You should really call me elder. But that gets confusing, especially in a region in the West with the LDS church. It can get really overwhelming. So we'll just stick with pastor. Okay. So our deacons, like when you, if you look at Raina and you look at uh, Marissa's job description, it says very specifically in Cites in 1 Timothy, they must meet the requirements of a deacon. You cannot be hired in this church as a position as minister without being, meeting the qualifications of a deacon. So they're not pastors, they're ministers, whatever, they're deacons. So our deacon board is filled with people that meet the qualifications of a deacon. Staff is separate. They are part of the board, but that only gives us a caveat that if we ever have a church secretary or a bookkeeper that's not a member of this church, then there's staff. So we, we don't do that. Our practice is to have people that are part of our church, but if we ever chose to have a secretary outside of the, our congregation, they would fall under staff. Okay? And then we have congregation, and that's you guys, congregation members and volunteers, and we have the congregation visitors and volunteers. We don't tell you as a volunteer, you can't volunteer unless you're a member. We'll let you volunteer with the hope of you becoming a member. And as a member, the hope is that you would become a leader and a volunteer, and the hope is that we'd all meet the qualifications of deacons. That's kind of where we're going with it. So, that's our flow chart. Two things, when you read the Bible, 
I've done this before, um, but you're going to hear it again. In hermeneutics, which just means how to do inductive Bible study, you have two ways of reading the scriptures. Exegesis, which means you try to pull the meaning out of the text, and eisegesis, even though it's written with an E. I said eisegesis for years until I think Isaac and others made fun of me for saying it wrong because, again, I'm a redneck. Um, even though I've been to seminary, sometimes I don't like to say big words. Eisegesis is when you read meaning into the text. And that's a problem when you take the proof text, you take passages out of context, and you put your experience and your background into the text instead of just opening it up and saying, what's this mean? It's going to be dangerous. This is where you get people saying, well, you know, uh, every plant and, and animal is given to us for our joy, so weed's okay, right? Because it's a plant, and it's given it to us for our joy. Eh, no, because it blocks the Holy Spirit. And if you smoke enough and you can't hear from the Holy Spirit, you can't feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that's a problem. But it's also the same with taking too many pills or having too much oxy or having too much whatever. It's the same concept, okay? So that's an issue. So you want to make sure that we go to the text. There's also two principles that we see when we study the scriptures. The principle of harmony, so we try to let other scripture interpret scripture. So when you don't really know what's happening in a passage, you've got to look at other passages to try to glean from that and say, like, okay, well, that makes sense. And then the principle of history, where God's revealed truth in context is specific to that cultural setting. And so we have to do the hard work as leaders, as believers, of saying, okay, well, this passage says this, and in this context, I think it means this, well, how does that apply to my life? And that's a hard thing to do. It requires brain capacity, effort. It's, sometimes you sweat, sometimes you linger. Sometimes you're like, I don't know, I don't get it. Sometimes you've got to ask for help. It can be rough. Um, and the harmony is we always use Scripture to interpret other Scripture. Okay? So, all that to be said, we believe here at First Christian Church and there's people in our leadership that disagree about this. Because up until five years ago, we had some female elders. That would shock a lot of you. We had, and we also were part of a denomination that did not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. And so we, before COVID, we were walking down the path, and we finally got to the place where, as a church, we believed in these concepts, and then we left our denomination. We are a non-denominational church. It used to say Disciples of Christ on the sign. And I forget that some of you don't know that that we walked down some roads where we were really wrestling. We, had, we called them family meetings. We had a year of almost every other week meetings over these issues, over male eldership, over all these things. And I forget that. And that's, that's on me. And, I, and again, I feel, I'm very apologetic today because um, I don't like it when there's stuff happening in the church and there's dissension, there's things happening. And ultimately, it's my responsibility as the head elder. Even though Darwin calls himself that and he goes to the board meetings, it's really me because... I'm taking it. All right. So we believe, if you look in the New Testament, you will see elder, overseer, pastor, shepherd all across. We almost put in our constitutions, we wrote things instead of taking out, we were going to take out elder and put overseer because I think that's a better translation of the word elder. And I wanted to differentiate us from other churches and denominations that have elder. I wanted to say overseer, but it sounded a little too Lord of the Rings to some people, so we didn't. Like, I want to be called Overseer, Mike the Overseer of First Christian Church. But no one else liked that. I think it brought connotations of like a cane and crystals, and so we didn't do that. But you will see those interchanged throughout the Scripture, just like preaching and teaching is, is interchangeable in the New Testament. 
I remember being part of the church in West Virginia, and I was told as it was a dig, it was like a slam against me. Uh, Mike, you're a really good teacher, but I think you really need to work on being a better preacher. What do you mean? I wasn't very animated. I wasn't very like, I didn't drive to tears, and I didn't, that's just not how I am. And so I was told I'm a good teacher, but I'm not a very good preacher because I should walk out. There wasn't enough people crying, and there weren't enough altar calls. So, but those words are interchangeable. So when you see in the New Testament, preacher and teacher, it's the same. You can't, you can't separate them. So you can't separate the public teaching of the word with the 10-person teaching of the word. You can't take a gathering of 100 and separate it from a gathering of 10 in a home or in a building or in a conference center because it's all, the Bible would say it's all the same. It's the preacher, teacher, preaching, teaching. Anytime someone is opening up the word of God and helping people understand it, you're doing one of those two things. But our, our conviction here is that elders fit this role. There's some people in our leadership that don't like that necessarily, but they trust me and they trust the word and they're not really there yet. And so it's okay. We can disagree on the male-female part. Now, deacon is a whole other thing. Um, if you, is this, this is elder. So we see overseer, um, an overseer must be above reproach. This is just the passage in 1 Timothy 3 that lays out the, the requirements of a, an elder. And so you could, and there are some churches where, I don't know where it says it, I'm not going to quote it right, uh, the husband of one wife, there we go, husband of one wife, there are some people that say I'm automatically disqualified because I don't have a wife. And there are some churches that would say that and they stick to that conviction. Um, some people say that that means someone who's divorced can't be because you had a wife and you lost her. And it's probably because you didn't manage your own household. And those are their churches and places I love that would follow that conviction. I don't see that. I think when you unpack it, it just means don't be an adulterer. It means don't be, you can't cheat. You can't be a cheater. Managing your household doesn't mean that your kids, if your kids go astray or we see your kid's name, if you're an elder and we see your kid's name in the paper because they got ripped and drunk and wrecked the car, we go, well, you don't manage your household very well. You're out. But it means is if, you manage, if, you, if that happens and you just don't punish your kid, uh, kids will be kids. Drunkenness is fine. We might question your ability to be an elder. Um, but, so this is the qualifications of an elder. Okay, you've seen these. I think I have a list and I don't, you can go back and listen to the sermon. Now, deacons. This is where we get women qualified to be deacons. Now, I grew up, I didn't grow up. I was part of a Baptist church. This church, is the Constitution, the old one, had this in it. If you've been around churches enough, you'll have the deacon deaconess titles. Anybody remember that? The deacon and deaconess? And so what that would say is deacons are men who swing hammers, help people, go fix things, and deaconesses cook and clean and bake pies. It might not say that directly in their constitution, but it says the care ministries and the fellowship events and very dividing of the genders. Well, we don't see that in the Bible. We see one term deacon. So I made a change here several years ago, and it was kind of funny as this walks in. I was applauded for taking the term deaconess out because I said the deacon is the title. You're either a male deacon or a female deacon. There is no differentiation between that. And I was like, oh, he's so progressive. Like, nah, I'm just following the Bible. But then when we rolled into male elders, how dare you? And it was, it was fun. All right, so what we see here, and then if you have an NASB, it doesn't say their wives likewise, it says women likewise. And this is where we have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. 
So why we believe we can have female deacons is because this word, and I'll read it to you. I haven't put the pronunciation because I always get it wrong. Well, I thought I did. Maybe I didn't. Oh, here it is. The word is hosautos. Okay, so you have gune, or gune, gune, G-U-N-E. I want to say goon, like dune, but I'm not sure that's how it is in Greek. But it says, wives or women, likewise. The word likewise is um, the how sotose, how sotose. And then the, the goon word is women. Or, it can be translated as wives or women. It can be translated as both. And you'll see it translated as we go across. And so the NASB says women, and the ESV says wives, and you can pick one or the two. So then how my brain works, when we let Scripture interpret Scripture, we know that in Romans chapter 16, verse 1, there's Phoebe the deacon. Paul mentions a female deacon. Correct? Maybe? Yes? You can look it up later. So there's a female deacon, and so that lets us interpret back to what he's saying in 1 Timothy, that this isn't just wives. This is women likewise. This is women also. Women are qualified to be deacons because we let Scripture interpret Scripture. If I just take my point to this, then this looks like deacons and the deacons' wives. Correct? You can read it that way. But if I let Scripture interpret Scripture, this means women can be deacons. Okay? So, we then fall into Stephen. Was Stephen an elder or a deacon? Oh, come on. Deacon, thank you. What did Stephen get stoned to death for? Preaching. So can deacons teach? Yes. So the conviction is, follow my my train of thought, office of elder is reserved for men only. That's my biblical conviction. Deacon is allowed for women. Stephen taught the word and was stoned to death for it. Therefore, women are able to teach in certain environments. Now, I could be wrong. Maybe I am. But that's where the biblical conviction is. And then you put in the cultural connections to what was the age of adulthood as a child during this time when Paul's writing? Ever heard of a bar mitzvah? 13. So if we're going to take this passage, which is next, if we're going to take this, that women should not be teaching... Then we have to remove women from all deacon qualified teaching positions to anyone at least over 13. They should not be able to teach a mixed crowd. I would even argue, because of when I, I hope you, I sent emails to John Piper, to John MacArthur, to Albert Moeller, to Matt Chandler, um, to their staff, to their assistants, because I struggle with this. And none of them had the guts to reply to me. And here's why. If we flesh this out, that deacon, women deacons aren't allowed to have a teaching role in the environment, then we need to remove all women from the stage during worship as well. Because if you, are going to, if you believe, and most churches believe, that the worship part of service is just as important as the teaching of the word. And most of our worship songs are filled with the word. And the cultural context of singing through the Psalms during this time in Paul's writing means they were worshiping through the word of God.
And if we take just that word teach, that only males are qualified to teach, then no more female children's ministers, no more female volunteers in children's ministry, youth ministry, adult ministry, college ministry. They all got to go. Now, I will say, Darwin and I did a fantastic job babysitting children yesterday and teaching his elders to little kids, so maybe we should be in children's ministry. However, all we did was throw food at them and play cars. Not sure that we really want that role. So where we land is, and this is the passage out of 1 Timothy, that most people get at. Okay? Now, I understand why, because Paul is talking about disorder in the church. Number one... If, we're, if we are going to let the scriptures interpret the scriptures as we're called to do, to have a good hermeneutic, a good explanation of inductive Bible study, then we have to understand that if we're going to take that one line, then we have to take all of it. You can't pick and choose. You have to let scripture interpret scripture. And so if we're going to say, I desire that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, likewise also the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty, self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. And became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And what's happening here is Paul is saying, hey, in the church service, some of you don't have all the knowledge. I want people to learn. We forget that part. Where he says, let a woman learn. That's revolutionary. I hope you understand that. That during this time, in the, with the church is fresh into the New Testament, fresh off Paul, women didn't go to rabbinical school. Women didn't start Hebrew studies. Women weren't allowed. Paul was the first, well, I'd say Jesus was, but the church was the first group of feminists that existed in a biblical proper way. Do not go home calling me a feminist. Okay? He said women learn. That's big. That's huge. Now, what's happening is there's ha- in the church, there's, a mo- there's moments happening in the church where this letter is written and there are, there's confusion and there's disruption happening. And Paul is saying, hey, 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 we need some time to catch up. We need some time to catch up. Let's let you have some space to learn and then have conversations. But this is not Paul saying, uh, women, when you walk into the service, that is when your mouth should start to shut. And for the rest of the service, I would prefer if you would stay quiet. That's not what he's saying. He's also not saying that uh, men should always pray with their hands lifted high in worship. That when all of us pray, we should be praying like this. Is that what he's saying? Because then we're, we're going against the scriptures there as well. Or those of you, I'm not going to, no. any of you ladies that have braided hair or gold jewelry on, how dare you? Or have an article of clothing with the name brand on it. How dare you? What's he saying? Well, we have to look at all of Scripture. He's saying, like, when you come to church, it's not about how you look. It's not about what you know. It's not about the gold. It's not about the hair. It's not about, like, getting all the answers. Like, you're coming into a body of believers to be washed in the blood of Christ to experience the Holy Spirit, to worship, to learn, and don't be a disruption. 
in 1 Corinthians when he tells women they shove their hair up? Is he saying that all of you ladies with your hair down are terrible people? No. He's referencing the temple of Aphrodite that existed in the city of Corinth. And at, the, at nighttime, when the temple prostitutes were there as their act of being part of the, the temple of Aphrodite, they would walk out of the temple with a hair down long as advertising that they were up for sale. So is Paul really saying, hey, ladies, buns are in? No. He's saying, hey, when you come to church, ladies, be a blessing to your husband and don't dress like a prostitute. That's all he's saying. But if we don't do the scripture interpreting scripture, then we end up with a really bad hermeneutic. And so we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful. So when he says, women, I don't permit a woman to teach. Is this a historic thing because this is the only times we see I? Is this a temporary thing? Is this a, a forever thing that women should never teach? I don't let a woman teach a man. Or is this about the household? There's a lot of things that this could be, and it's up to us to try to figure all that out. And we're going to get it wrong. The conviction of the leaders here is that when a female teaches, whether it's giving an announcement to children's ministry, maybe the unpacking of the word from this stage or in a Sunday school class, they are women qualified as deacons who are under the authority of elders. When we let a missionary get up on stage and they're male or female, they're under the authority of the elders. When Marissa teaches the kids, it's under the authority of the elders. When Jonah and Peyton take kids on an amazing youth trip and they're having a great time and I got a text message, a couple girls want to be baptized, great things are happening, it's under the authority of the elders. And that's what we believe. That whatever happens is under the authority of the elders. And if we get it wrong, then we're held accountable to it and we will apologize, we'll figure it out, we'll, we'll labor under the scriptures. We will. But it's not, oh, I'm not doing that. I was told not to. My closing was, hey, go look up 1 Corinthians 7 and see how you feel about that one. But you can do that on your own, your own time. I'm not putting it on the screen because all of you couples in the room will hate me. But it's just our conviction. And if we're wrong and it changes and we move, but I, we believe that everything is under the authority of the elders. We believe in male eldership. We believe in male senior pastors. And we believe that deacons are qualified to teach. The issue is, if you start to see your if you start to see Marissa as the authority in the church, as a deacon, or Raina as an authority in the church, if she if Raina was able to speak twenty times a year, you begin to see her as an authority, wouldn't you? She's not allowed because that's not her role. If Marissa was able to come up and teach, if she, we let her do a Sunday morning where she was teaching us all about children's ministry and what's happening and going through the answers in Genesis part on a Sunday morning to all of us, would you see her as the senior pastor? Probably not. But if she did it seven weeks in a row, yeah, you'd start to see that. And so we, we're sensitive to that. We don't, want that to, we don't want that to be confusing or clouded, but I just felt like I owed you all an apology because you haven't been through 1 Timothy. You haven't been here through all that. And I watched some of your body language during the service last week. I was like, oh, I messed up. And then I heard of, I had at least three conversations myself, and I know the elders had more conversation. I'm like, oh, we got it. I don't want this. I don't want, we're a family. I don't want this to be weird or, or terrible or like, we got to work through these things. So those of you in the last, are new in the last three or four years, you're welcome. Yes. Shoot.
Minister of Spiritual Formation. Which is another one of these things. So you want to know what that means? How many of you remember having a discipleship pastor in your church? It was called the pastor for discipleship, right? Or the education minister. Or all those things. That's just the latest flavor of how to say that. Spiritual formation means that it's not just book classification, book study, and Bible study. It's trying to have a picture of the whole life, who you are. Raina does some individual counseling with women. She is active in the conversations with our deacons about how, whether it's the worship services and the decoration. And she has a passion for setting the tone, the, the setting the stage for us to feel all of Christ, not just in an academic way. When she was hired, she was hired to be a women's minister. That transition to being, she did a lot of admin stuff, like an administrative minister. Um, and then she's had multiple titles. We used to call her the minister of everything else because when people are gone and there is no, like when Marissa was on maternity leave, she organized all the volunteers and made sure children's ministry was happening. Um, when we had no one doing youth, there was a transition period, there's no one doing youth, she kind of stepped in and helped some organization in that. So she's kind of the utility player of the staff. And so that you'll see a lot more like in the spiritual formation stuff, it's kind of the newest way of saying discipleship. But when you hear discipleship, people think book work. They don't think their whole life. And so that changed in probably three years ago to try to understand it's all of life. So you'll see her going on hikes with people. And even though it's a hike with a friend, she's really trying to get into people's lives. And so it's not, if we just said discipleship, that's, we're just going to do a coffee study. So that's where that comes from. All right. If you have questions, ask me. I'm, and I might be wrong. Like, th this is what I've always said. When we went through Romans 1, I could put the call out to say, if you disagree with where I land in the scriptures on this issue, let's talk. Bring your Bible. Show up. Let's study the scriptures together. You throw your quotes at me. I'll throw my quotes at you, and we'll be friends. We'll, we'll figure it out. But I, and there can't be like the exchanging of barbs. You did that. You said that. I don't know. If, we don't, if, if we're supposed to be a family, we talk. So let's talk. Okay? Now the real sermon, real fast. <laughs> nope, I told you to set a timer for 10 minutes. You didn't do it. All right. Uh, we've done this before, so I feel comfortable rolling through this. You know this passage. And I wanna, there's, there's a new insight that I kind of want you to see that I'm wrestling with. And maybe you can help me with this. I think I'm on the track of something kind of cool, but I could be losing my mind as well. We know that when Noah got out of the ark, he created the first altar. Genesis 8. We've already discussed this. Think about what's happening here. When that, like, can you, I love road trips. Love them. I prefer car road trips over airplane travel. Because there's a point in the airline travel when that, that giant tube becomes one big B.O. flatulent tube, right? Have you ever been on international flight? Oh, uh, KLM, is that, K is that the, the Netherlands? Is that the Amsterdam one? When you take off from them, they, they de-louse, defog the whole plane because of that smell. It's one of the most unnerving but also glorious things that happens. The plane's about to take off, and a stewardess pops a can on an aerosol, and she walks all the way 
down one end of the plane while the one's on that aisle doing the same thing. And you're like, why are they doing that? Oh, we're going to be here for 12 hours. That's why. These people stink. So I love a good road trip. But there's that moment. I love car rides. I love the gas station food. I love all of it. My love of Skyline Chili was created on a road trip. Terrible for my family. You've been on that road trip part where, like, I mean, it was Eli. He kicks his shoes off at that age of, like, 12. You're like, oh, my, what is that smell? Put your shoes back on. Happens. I love the bonds built in a road trip. But aren't we all in that moment like, oh, I'm so glad to be out of that car. I'm so glad, right? We have that moment, don't we? Now imagine Noah, almost a year, with his wife and kids and their families and a bunch of smelly animals. Almost a year. Not just 40 days and 40 nights. That's just when the water's going. We talked about this. The receding, when it happened, it's about a year And Noah gets out of the boat, out of the ark. shouldn't say boat, sorry. All this is happening. What's his first thing he does? He has this moment where they come out, and every beast, every creepy thing, every bird, everything that moves on earth went out by the families from the ark. God's first thing is scatter these animals. So they scatter. They probably do some organization in this. I think the first couple times I read this, the doors kicked open. Noah runs out with his family, and the animals just herd out. Well, we know if you unleash these animals to the cages they are in the ark, what's going to happen? They're going to eat each other. So there had to be some order to this. Someone sent me a meme, I forgot to share it with you all, where it said, Captain's Log, Day 39. Um, uh, Roasted unicorn is fantastic. (laughs) And that's why we don't have unicorns. I mean, it's, it's a nice, funny joke but dumb, but made me laugh. So these animals are released in that moment, okay? So it's going to take some time. you got to unload every animal that still exists. It's going to take some time. So once all that work's done, Noah has been doing all that he's told. What does he do of his own accord? He builds an altar. He builds an altar. And he sacrifices some of the clean birds and animals at that space in a burnt offering. Now, I kind of struggled with the burnt offering thing. It's like, what? you know, it seems a little hokey to me. Can I say hokey? For the God of the universe who is with us and ever-present and always with us to need a burnt offering. Because burnt offering, when you look at the Hebrew word, and I, didn't, I don't have the word, but I have what it means. The Hebrew word for burnt offering actually means ascend, literally to go up and smoke. Now, this is a pagan practice where you're burning things so that that smoke goes to the heavens. And I had this, I'm like, well, that's, that's dumb. I don't like doing church tradition just because I don't like it. And there needs to be a biblical meaning to it. And so as I'm studying these different altars, the burnt offerings, I struggled a little bit this week. I'm like, you know, why do I need to burn stuff? That's just silly. Well, now I understand. What's happening is there's a continuation of practices. And in this moment with with Noah, he's saying, like, this, this is how it's always done. I can't see you, God, but I know you. I hear your voice. I hear the impression. I hear your presence. I feel your presence. But I need, I need to find a way for you to know that I'm with you. I need a way to have some kind of a sacrifice or a moment of surrender with you. So he, out of thanksgiving, out of a thankfulness, he takes some of these clean animals he's been eating on. He's been told they're clean. And he takes some of these animals and he creates an altar as an act of worship. 
And we know that God was pleased in this because he tells us. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And so what God responds to this surrender to God. His first, like if I'm off that, if I've been on a boat with my family for a year, my first act isn't going to be, hey God, I owe you uh, my surrender. I want to make sure we're okay. I want to do this. What I'm going to do is leave. I want to be alone for at least 15 to 20 days. That's what I want. Before I have to deal with these, these people again, I don't want to be with them. So his first act is to say, it's, it's uh, a mom in the first service. We mentioned the, the family um, that passed. Her son called her coming back from skiing that there was a traffic jam and he's going to be a little late. And so in that moment, as the mom then reads later in Facebook that there's a family in loss, she felt this guilt of being thankful that her son was okay. And when you read the Psalms, you hold that tension. You're so thankful that it's not you, it's not your family, but you're also so heartbroken for this family. That's a hard thing to hold together. You're so thankful, but also like you can't, your mind goes to the devastating places. And so here's Noah in this moment. He's done his job. He's done his task. He's let the animals out. He's done what God has said. He's fulfilled all the things God has asked of him. And then he has this realization as he enters the planet off the ark and the animals are scattered. There's no other people. Just his family. There's no one left. The entire world is gone. They're all dead. They're all dead. And in this tension of thankfulness, I'm so thankful you saved me. I'm so thankful you saved my family. I'm so thankful you chose me, God. But everyone's dead. He creates an altar. A moment of surrender, a moment of sacrifice, a moment of thanksgiving. He puts these animals that have sustained him and he offers them up to a God he can't see, a God he can't touch, but he knows and he feels this in him that there's something about the smoke. There's something about burning this up. There's something about this surrender of even the food that sustains him and his family. There's something here. and We're going to explore this for the next several weeks. God says it smells good because it smelled like barbecue. It was a pleasing aroma. Meat on the fire. Mm. But what is it? It's not just that. It's his moment of surrender. It's his moment of saying, I, his moment of thankfulness. His moment of throwing all the questions, all the doubt on that altar, and it rises to the Lord, and the Lord says, I'm pleased. This is Noah, because we know what he does. He gets drunk. There's all kinds of things that happen after this. This is, this is the pattern that we have with God the Father. I, I, I'm, I'm trying. I, I, I'm, I'm getting there. I'm, I'm doing the disciplines. I'm doing the things, but my heart is wicked. My, my mind goes to things it shouldn't go to. My actions sometimes go against you, Lord. And then there's these moments of surrender where we say, oh, I'm sorry for the thing I've made it, Lord. I'm sorry for what I've done. And in those moments, that confession, that honesty, that 
That's the sweet aroma. And God says, hey, I get it. I know you. Like, have you ever pictured that? Like, God knows all of our thoughts. Doesn't that terrify you? Like, I, I am mortified at the idea of a neural link in my brain, and all of you will know my thoughts. I, I would have to become a hermit. There is so much darkness. There is so much sarcasm. There is so much evil that flows in my mind that I don't want anybody to know that. I would have zero friends. I don't think like I don't think evil of all of you, but sometimes you don't wear plaid, and I think it's foolish. <laughs> and this is God saying, "I know you. I know you so well. I know you so well. In all of your effort, all of your trying, all of your, it's okay. I got you. I see you. I see what you're doing. I see what you're trying to do. I see." how you're striving. I see that you keep coming back to me. I see that no matter how far you think you've gone, that you realize that I'm right near and so you sacrifice on an altar. You make a place to make space to surrender to God. And out of that surrender, he says, I'm never doing this again. I'm not going to wipe the planet out again like that. We also know from Revelation 5.8, that the prayers of the saints, the prayers of all of us, the offerings, the surrenders, they're all collected in bowls in heaven. And at the moment when the seals are broken and the trumpets are sounded, that prayer, that incense, that aroma that's risen to heaven is used to make it all right again. And I know it's not much comfort when you're in the middle of grief and you're in the middle of pain. But God hears every single prayer. He hears every single cry. He knows your heart. And even though he might not step in with a miracle, he might not step in and rescue from that, he hears all of it. And it might not be apparent on this side of heaven, but there's coming a day when the aroma of our worship and our grief and our praise and everything is being collected. And it will be the fuel to cleanse the earth of all brokenness and sin. At least that's what Revelation tells us. And so even in this moment... Noah's beginning the practice of saying, yes, God. Even in all the things I don't understand, there's you. And I'll worship you forever. So for us, we see in Romans 12.1, Paul tells us that our lives are to be the spiritual act of worship. And if you read Romans, the book of Romans is the Mount Everest of theology. Romans chapter 8 is the tippy top. The great 8 is like the pinnacle of Mount Everest. You summit Everest. And we see from Romans 1 to 11, Paul lays out the theology that we are saved by faith through grace alone. We are saved by grace through faith alone. Sorry. We're saved by grace through faith alone is the whole story of Romans 1 to 11. And then he says, therefore. There's a song of worship at the end of chapter 11. Some say a doxology. I think that's probably accurate. And then we get 12.1. Therefore, I appeal to you, brothers. Well, I appeal to you, therefore, sorry. Brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We don't have to go to altars and burn things. Our lives are the sacrifice. That same word used for burnt offerings or ascension 
this is, I'm going to give you the end of the story, Easter Sunday. The burnt offerings and the aroma of offerings in the Old Testament, we see Jesus. When, when, what do we say happens in Acts after he's here for 40 days? What's he do? He ascends. If you have the Greek, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the same word we see in Greek and in Acts. It's the same word. And so what we're seeing is Jesus is the burnt offering by ascension. He's not actually burnt on the cross. His sacrifice on the cross is the ascension. It's he, he bodily ascends as we're seeing the aroma from the altars happening here. So my brain has been flooded with fire stuff all week. I'm like, okay, is this why every campfire is so much fun? Is this is why when I'm cooking... If there's paper plates around, we've got to burn them in the campfire. Even when someone says, hey, don't do that, that'll kill the ozone. We do it anyway, right? Why is it that everybody plays with candles? Like, and, and someone in the first service gave me the term. I was like, what's the term when you like push the wax down around? It's called hugging the candle. But we're just playing in wax. We all know that. None of us really care about the Yankee candle going wrong. We're just sticking our fingers in the hot wax because we like, and we all do this. Right? Come on, I know you've done it. I'm not the only one. There's something about the flame. And so then my brain's going, okay, these altars, burnt offerings, aroma, incense. I thought incense was only for hippies and for people that ran out of patchouli oil. And so then we have, like, I'm thinking these things, and that's not really there. But then what about the fires? Heat, sustenance, the flame. Of, what, then it leads me to, okay, Jesus ascends to heaven as an ascension, and so that's just like the aroma ascending in this moment. And then we have the day of Pentecost, 40 days after he goes to heaven, and we have flames. The Holy Spirit comes like a flame on the heads of the people. We have Jesus showing up in, as Melchizedek, having a meal. We see God covering Moses and the, all of his people in Exodus as a, at night as a flame in the sky and a cloud during the day. Like there's a theme of fire and sacrifice that's happening throughout the Bible. And I, I'm sure there's a book out there I've just never read that explains all this. But for me, it was like, whoa, what's happening? I'm kind of geeking out on it. I'm having fun with it. Because I've also experienced something in the last probably four to five months. There was a time of a tradition in this church where we had kids before the service would come forward with the little candle lighting wicks. And they would come up and they would light two candles here on the stage. And at the end of the service, they would come out and snuff the candle. And the church tradition is that we are asking God to enter in. We're asking Jesus to enter in as the light of the world. And then we snuff him out at the end. No, we don't. It's that as we extinguish the candle, then you're supposed to take Jesus out into the world. Right? We kind of, it became a, a logistical nightmare. And if I'm honest, I thought it was a little hokey coming to this church. I just thought it was. I thought it was silly. Why are we doing this? But then every night, every Christmas Eve, we do the lighting of the candles. If I killed that part of the service this Christmas Eve, that might be what gets me fired. It happened about eight years ago when I stopped saying the Lord's Prayer in the second service. I almost got ran out of town on that one. I didn't understand that. I didn't, for me, it's just silly tradition. Like, why are you saying that every week? Until someone talked to me about how that prayer is in their mind and in their heart, no matter what happens in the times of hardness and times of pain, it's something they've drawn to because it's become part of their, their life. 
okay, I'm an idiot. Okay, all right, we'll do it. And now, unless when I download the wrong one, I can still say it too. So now for the last, I guess, I guess it's probably been four months, when the house is quiet and the kids are at Amber's, it gets, it's a little lonely, if I'm just being honest, if I can be a little transparent. And so there's these moments where I really want to redeem that time. I invite people over, I have people in my house, I cook for people, and we do Bible studies, or we, Eli has his friends over, and there's, there's just, there's, I try to keep some activity going for my own sake too. But there's these, when it's just dead silent, I, I can't pray and listen to music. I can't. I just I focus on the lyrics. I just I can't. That's just me. So I started lighting a candle and sitting at the kitchen table and spending some time in prayer. And it's been really transformative for me. Now, if I can be real honest again, um, I like the wood wick candles that crackle because the silence is a little too deafening sometimes. <laughs> And if there's a crackle, it almost makes me feel like it's a campfire. And I just spend some time with God. Sometimes I, hang, I open up my laptop and I journal because I have to type everything because you can't read my writing. And so I'll have that open. But just to have a distraction-free moment of space with just me and God, the fire has been part of that story in the last few months. And so I'm, I'm just telling you, I'm trying to figure out what all this means and where it's going. And I'm really excited about some time of thinking about the altars and the sacrifices we lead into Easter. Because there's something about this burnt offering and these offerings, and it's not just the stuff. We know that the complete burnt offering that happened, what Noah did, and later is when everything is consumed. We know in Leviticus, there's other offerings where some of the meat is kept for the priests. Here we see in these burnt offerings, I'll just give you a couple more. I didn't put them on the screen because, well, I didn't. In Exodus 29... We see a listing of all the times in which burnt offerings in 28 and 29. Um, Exodus 29 and Numbers 28. We see these offerings pop up. Every morning and evening, some kind of a burnt offering. Each Sabbath, the beginning of every month, at Passover, with new grains, first fruits offerings, the first of weeks, feast of weeks, at the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, at the new moon, there's several more. But there was a pattern of the people of God, to have a moment to remember, to surrender, to say that you are my everything, I'm not going to keep it all for myself. Today, what we often say is that the time of offering of money is the time of tithes and offerings. That this is a time, and so that is a good thing, but it can also become, well, I, I gave it the office. Like, what am I going to do the rest of the week? Like, where, where's that space where you have time to surrender? You have time to say, God, I don't, I don't measure up. I know I don't. You still love me? That blows my mind. But I'm thankful. So this is what I'm going to do as an act of sacrifice. I'm going to give up 15 minutes of my day and spend with you. It's not really giving up. It's kind of like gaining in the long run. I'm going to serve in this capacity. I'm going to pay attention to my neighbor. I'm going to spend more time with my family and guiding them in this direction instead of being distracted out doing whatever. If, if we're called by Paul that our whole lives are an act of worship, it's our whole lives. It's everything. And so I guess my question is two things. Ponder with me the fire stuff for the next few weeks. 
I don't have it all figured out. I kind of, I'm, I don't know, like even in Zechariah, there's the ring of fire that happens, the protection of, of Jerusalem. There's a, he, there's a call back to God and there's a ring of fire that exists. There's, you have Jesus describing Gehenna, which is hell, the trash heap outside of Jerusalem. And so there's this stench of burning um, trash. It's also where children were sacrificed. So that's a bad aroma through fire. We're, they're all throughout the, well, not all throughout, in the places where the descriptions of hell, especially in Revelation, it's a lake of fire. Is there, like, I, my head's going all over the place. If you have a book to recommend to me that will explain it all, I would love that. Maybe I'll just write my own book. I'm not right. I don't have time for that. But think about those things. And then also, where's a space where you surrender? When my kids were very young, um, that space was very hard to find. I was blessed with a job where it was kind of required for me to go spend some time with God and pray. It's kind of part of the job. But you know how you know how it is. You got little ones. If you get up early, you probably don't take the time to spend with God. You have three thousand things to do before they finally get out of bed and ruin all your plans. At the end of the night, they finally go to bed, and you're like, oh, "I'm planning all day." When the kids go to bed, when I get it all taken care of, when the diaper pail is cleaned up, when this is happening, when the dishes are in the dishwasher. Then I'm going to have a half an hour with the Lord, and then it all falls apart, and you're like, I just want to not think. Right? We all have those spaces. You get older, it's really nice. You younger parents, when they can, like, get themselves out of their own car seat, whoa. When they're taking their own showers, what? When you no longer have to wipe their butts, like, yes! It's amazing! Then they become teenagers. And then you just worry all the time. And like, I love that you have freedom. I don't like your freedom. Do what I say, not what you want. And now I'm facing in the next few years, there's going to be that more emptiness in the home. And so the time to, for space is, it's different. It's going to be rare when the kids are really little. You're going to have to carve out and be more diligent about the time. You're going to when they're older, you have more time, but then you're going to worry about the distraction of what are your older kids doing when your kids are out of the house and they don't talk to you every day or they rarely talk to you. Then you're just worrying all the time or thinking about them and it's always in the back of your head. And so that happens too. And so we all have this time of we've got to carve out a place to surrender. For a lot of years it, since moving here, um, I didn't hunt at all before moving here. And so I love being alone in the woods. It feels like I'm being productive because I'm trying to put some meat in the freezer. And for a lot of years, it was just lots of bow hiking. But the quiet, the solitude is so life-giving for me. I messed up this year by killing an elk on opening day. And even though I had a great sense of accomplishment with a lot going on in my life, I ruined my solitude time because then I was like, well, I, I mean, I can go out, I guess. I don't, I mean, what's your space? Where do you find the place to surrender? Is it as simple as lighting a candle for 10 minutes and asking God to be present in that place? Is it just going for a walk? Is it just taking off? Being quiet at home. I don't know what it looks like for you. So this week, I'd like you to explore 
what space you have to surrender. Where is your altar? Where's your place of saying surrender to God? Now we're going to journey through this for the next several weeks. Maybe we'll find our place. Where do I feel most comfortable saying, it's all yours, God. Show me the way. And then sit back and wait for him to respond. He loves you. He loves you desperately. Um, I love, I know I'm a big fan of David Crowder. You all know that because I talk about it all the time. But that idea of him being jealous for me, that he really wants to be with me, that's hard for me to swallow sometimes. Because I don't feel very desirable or lovable sometimes. And to be constantly bombarded from his word that he really wants to be with me is earth-shattering. And I need to carve space so I'm reminded of that constantly. Because without that truth, it gets pretty dark in my head. So where do you have the space to be reminded of that truth? All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for this time we've had together as a family, uh, as people seeking you and worshiping you and wanting you to guide us in every way. I pray, Lord, you would help us. You would help us to find that spot, that space, that time, that practice that helps us um, to know you in deeper ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.